Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barker, the host of New Books and Law. Today we will be discussing A Legal History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, A Nation of Rights by Laura F. Edwards, Peabody Family Professor of History at Duke University. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying the intersections of law and history? Sure. It's actually sort of a long story. I started out in high school wanting to be a musician and had every intention of actually doing that. I went to Interlochen Arts Academy. Um, I took primarily music. And then I took a history course when I was there, and I was just blown away with how exciting it was to study the past, which may sound odd when you're 16 years old, but um, to me, it was incredible that you could find all this out, all this information out about people who were long gone and how meaningful that was and could be to understanding who we are today. And so I decided I would drop music and be a historian instead. And I really didn't have any idea of what that was at the time. But slowly and surely through um, being an undergraduate and then in graduate school, it became clear to me that my interest lay also in looking at the history of ordinary people, of uncovering what their lives were about and trying to figure out if I could find out about people who had disappeared, had left very little record, um, and trying to place them into the historical record. So I was very interested in social history, but I was also interested in the ways that ordinary people interacted with structures of power, with politics, with the law. And the law in particular opened up possibilities of seeing how ordinary people connected with, you know, institutions of governance, um, power relationships, and seeing how their lives intersected with some of the main themes of U.S. history. And this did, the law did this more than political history. Political history is mainly focused on people who voted, people who could participate in the political process. And so many people in the 19th century were unable to vote and unable to participate in that process. So the law, they were able to participate in the law, even if they didn't have rights. They often wound up in the legal system. So the law provided a way to understand the intersections of ordinary people's lives with institutions of power. So I moved from being a social historian to slowly but surely being also a legal historian, but a legal historian who's really interested in ordinary people, not just legal institutions, but the way that people use the law and what that means both for their lives, but also what that means for how we understand the trajectory of U.S. history. Would you please tell us now how you came to write your current work, A Legal History of the Civil War and Reconstruction? It actually started a few years ago, actually, more like 10 years ago, I believe, when uh, Christopher Tomlins and Michael Grossberg, both of whom are legal historians, were putting together the Cambridge History of Law in America, which is a three-volume series that contained essays about particular topics in legal history. And instead of asking more senior scholars, they asked people who they thought were up and coming in the field, more junior people. Um, and they asked me to do the essay on Civil War and Reconstruction. And I was at first very hesitant because I had just finished a book in the Civil War and Reconstruction, and I was moving on to a new project. And I didn't want to look back. I wanted to look forward. And so I first said no to doing that essay. And they came back and said, can you please do it? And I think I said no again, as I recall. And they came back and said, can you please do it? And I finally said, okay. So I wrote the essay, which is a short essay, about 50 pages long. It went into that volume, and they decided then after that that they were going to turn some of those essays into short books. So they asked me to do that. And actually, I had a great deal of fun writing the essay, ultimately. And so I thought, oh, I'll do the book. And the book ultimately proved more challenging because turning a 50-page article into a full book is actually much more involved than I had initially thought. And that turned into a new challenge that was also really a lot of fun because I was able to use 
my legal history lectures, because I've been teaching legal history now for about 10 years, and I was able to use those and use incorporate all of that into the narrative of the book. Um, it also gave me an opportunity to read really widely in the field and to think about how my thoughts and my ideas were ultimately interacting with all the literature that was out there. So it was a lot of fun to write this kind of synthetic book that's based in the ideas that I've been developing in my lectures, the primary sources that I've been reading, and then all the incredible work that's being done by other historians and putting that all together. So ultimately then, that book, this book came out of of all of that. Could you describe the way in the lead up to the Civil War, all arguments came back to the U.S. Constitution? I was actually really surprised when I sat down and read the primary material and saw how important the U.S. Constitution was. I don't think of myself as a constitutional historian. I actually think of myself as a legal historian with the law defined more broadly. But actually, the primary sources, what people were saying at the time, all of their arguments were about the U.S. Constitution. And once I sat down and thought about it, it made sense in a general way. Um, After the Revolution, the American Revolution, after the colony separated from the king, the law was essentially king. And this is what, to paraphrase Tom Paine, um, he said, basically, the law is king now. And he was reflecting the culture of the time where people put a great deal of emphasis and faith in the law as the body of authority, um, body of ideas that created authority and that people look to to guide governance in the new United States. And this faith in that was also, in the law, was also focused on the U.S. Constitution as sort of the basis for both law and government in the nation as a whole. And so holding up the U.S. Constitution, saying that what your position is granted and legitimized by the U.S. Constitution was a way of elevating your particular ideas and giving them weighty authority of the law. That said, people were really convinced that the ways that they were understanding their positions in the lead-up to the Civil War, whether it was pro-slavery, whether it was pro-secession, whether it was pro-union, whether it was anti-slavery, people were very convinced as well that what they were saying was, in fact, legitimized by the U.S. Constitution. People had different interpretations of what the Constitution allowed. Um, And so these arguments were not just instrumental. It was a fundamental belief in what the law actually meant in the United States. And we reached this point in the Civil War where those ideas were so different that people were willing to basically shoot each other over it. We went to war because of these very different um, understandings of what the law in this country actually meant. Um, And I found that really interesting because the people's faith in the law was so profound, but their belief in what the law said was also so incredibly different. So it was not, like I said, just instrumental. This was about fundamental beliefs about what the nation meant And all of those ideas really came back to the law with the Constitution being representative of what the law meant. Would you discuss how the turmoil of war also created space for people to express popular conceptions of justice and to move into the ambit of government policy? I was really kind of surprised about how people were able to move their ideas about what the law was and what it should be, how they were able to move it um, into government policy. Um, Even people who could not vote, even people who did not have rights, like African Americans who were enslaved, or married women who lost property rights um, when they married because of coverture, all these people were really able to participate in the legal order of the time. Um, And I think there's three kind of interesting dynamics at work here. Um, The first one in the Confederacy, the Confederacy um, immediately centralized um, after secession, which is interesting because the Confederacy was all about states' rights, presumably, and yet they created one of the strongest central governments, um, actually much stronger than what was uh, created in the Union during the Civil War. The federal government of the Confederacy um, centralized even um, aspects of economic production, 
Um, they did all kinds of things with the army, centralized the army. They did incredible sort of job of pulling the entire Confederacy together to mobilize for war, and that was directed through the federal government. Um, and yet they weren't particularly effective in a lot of ways. While they were mobilizing for war, they left a lot of key issues about governance and people's daily lives aside. And what that meant was that people in the Confederacy did not always see the government, the federal government of the Confederacy, as either effective, competent, or even legitimate. So while the Confederate government was overfighting the war, ordinary people were kind of left on their own to tend to the daily business of life, you know, property issues, theft, trying to feed themselves, trying to keep order in their communities. And so, oddly, the centralization of the Confederacy left open huge areas where ordinary people had to step in and govern their lives. And so, in those areas at the local level, some at the state level, people were able to act on popular conceptions of justice. So the Confederacy actually left open this whole array of issues that ordinary people stepped into and then used popular conceptions of justice. It was because the federal government was both so strong in some ways, so focused on the war, but left so many issues untended. So there was that aspect in the Confederacy. In the Union, um, one of the things the United States does during the Civil War is based their policies in the people. So they are using the people constantly as a way to legitimate the extension of federal power in the United States, in the Union side of the war. So um, the federal government is talking about um, you know, the war for the people. This is the people are at the center of the government. And this rhetoric is really powerful, and people do start seeing themselves as connected to the federal government in ways they hadn't really thought of before. And this is, I think, best exemplified in the Gettysburg Address, where Lincoln says, the United States of America. He's thinking of the United States as singular now, as represented through the federal government as a unified nation, and that's represented through the people. Now, before, people had actually talked about the United States in plural, as the United States. And so people would talk about their relationship to government in an array of different ways. So they would be citizens of New York City, um, citizens of North Carolina, citizens of Ohio, citizens of a county. Um, and so their idea of their relationship to government was local, it was state. They could also be citizens of the United States. But increasingly, people attach their relationship to government to the United States. The people in the Union came to see themselves as directly connected to this new federal, stronger federal government, stronger national entity. And as they saw that relationship as more direct, they also started to make more claims on the federal government. So it's a different relationship that develops in the Union, um, one that is about a federal government that actually is responding to the people, um, it is creating a more direct relationship to the people, which is quite different from the Confederacy. And then in the third area, which is really important, is the relationship between enslaved African Americans and free blacks and the federal government in the United States, in the Union. And this hinges on the importance of slavery in the Civil War. So during the Civil War, actually before the Civil War, Lincoln, the Republican Party, is running on the promise to leave slavery alone in those states where it already exists. When the South secedes, when the Confederacy is created, Lincoln still, and the Republican Party is still committed to that. But enslaved people see the Civil War as an opportunity to undermine slavery. So they immediately start leaving plantations. And they immediately start running to union lines. And people who are on plantations also start rebelling. Um, they start ignoring the orders of masters. They start trying to undermine the institution of slavery where they are. So for them, the upheaval of the Civil War presents an opportunity to actually reject the institution of slavery, the institution that keeps them in bondage. Free blacks in the North also see the Civil War as an opportunity for abolition, something they have been advocating for a long time. So given the centrality of slavery ultimately to the Civil War, um, given the ways that this 
institution divides the Union and the Confederacy, enslaved people, free blacks, are ultimately able to push the slavery issue, push abolition during the Civil War in ways that the federal government of the United States ultimately has to respond to. So there are three kind of ways that people are able to move their ideas into the ambit of government at this point. Sometimes it's with the federal government in the United States uh, for people who remain in the Union, for African Americans, both in the Confederacy and free blacks in the North. And there's also, though, the sort of popular conceptions of justice within the Confederacy amongst both whites and blacks in the Confederacy who are operating at the local and state level and who are moving their ideas about law and justice into those particular areas. So this upheaval then really alters people's relationship to both the law and the government. Okay. Could you introduce us to the historiography of the Civil War and Reconstruction and tell us how your legal history changes the narrative of both the legal change and of people's relationship to the law during the Civil War and Reconstruction? So a lot of the historiography of this period um, is still framed by the Dunning School. Now, the Dunning School um, describes a body of work that emerged in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, the mentor, the man who created the foundations for this way of looking at reconstruction was William A. Dunning, who was a professor at Columbia University. And he produced a series of um, students who then did histories of basically every southern state and um, covered all aspects of Reconstruction. And all of these scholars were basically opposed to the kinds of changes that came out of Reconstruction. The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment, which established equal civil rights for African Americans. And the role of the federal government in protecting those rights. And then the 15th Amendment, um, which established voting rights for African Americans. Um, so they were upset about both the extension of the federal government's authority, but they were also very resistant to the idea of civil and political equality for African Americans. So they saw all of these changes as going too far. They saw this as a radical change, and they saw this as extraordinary, extraordinarily problematic because it altered the terms of the U.S. Constitution, gave the U.S. federal government way too much authority, and then imposed changes on the states of the former Confederacy. Later scholars then came along and said, no, 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 the problem is not that there was change that was bad. The problems were that these changes were, in fact, good, that they were fulfilling the ideals of the U.S. Constitution, of extending civil and political rights more broadly, of using federal authority to uphold the rights of citizens, and this, they saw, was all good. Um, a lot of the scholarship then is called revisionist scholarship. It comes from after World War II, when people are rethinking the position of African Americans in the United States, where you have the burgeoning civil rights movement, and people are now questioning the kinds of racism that characterized the early 20th century. So for these scholars, revisionist scholars, the problem was that these changes had not gone far enough. Um, and so... If anything, they thought that there was too much continuity. Later scholarship then comes back and rethinks some of these issues, emphasizing the ways that ordinary people, particularly African Americans, are at the root of some of these kinds of changes. So instead of federal policy being the dynamic that then caused this change, the new literature comes in and explores the ordinary people who were out there during the Civil War who were pushing changes. So the idea that African Americans are key in, for instance, pushing abolition comes out of this body of work from the 70s, 80s. But here again, the emphasis is on change, but change that didn't go far enough. But this is kind of tragic because Reconstruction opened up these opportunities to create a more just society, to realize civil and political equality for African Americans to create a more democratic society, and yet the federal government didn't push hard enough, state government didn't push hard enough, these changes ultimately were not realized. So the the, the arguments kind of split back and forth between change, not enough, change, too much. 
And so I wanted to come in and kind of rethink some of those basic issues. And for me, what is interesting about this period is that you do have these opportunities, these changes in people's relationship to government. But for me, it is that change in relationship to government that is the most profound thing. So whereas previous scholarship has focused on whether we realize democratic change, we realize civil and political rights for African Americans or not, I'm interested in how all of these changes altered people's basic relationship to government in this period. And so for me, what is so interesting is that ordinary people, white and black, their relationship to the federal government in particular is profoundly altered by the Reconstruction Amendment. And what I mean by that is that these Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the idea that the federal government has oversight increasingly over the civil and political rights of citizens of the United States, those have implications for every American. It's not just African Americans, it's actually all Americans. It's white people, it's women, it's men, it's rich people, it's poor people. Nobody escapes those changes. And so the question is not whether civil and political rights were extended to African Americans, but the question is more about all Americans' relationships to government and what these new changes open up for Americans to do. Um, and what you see actually is people after the formal end of Reconstruction really using this idea that they can go to the federal government as a guarantor of certain rights. They push those ideas and they actually create a new kind of direct relationship to the federal government that they never really had before. And they push the federal government in new ways to take a more active role in the lives of Americans in governing kinds of relationships that the federal government had not before. So to me, that's just really interesting. And I think this is about change, ultimately. But these changes are even more profound than what we thought because it's not just African Americans who are involved they're involved, those Reconstruction Amendments altered their relationship to government. It didn't fully establish civil and political rights, but it did change their fundamental relationship to government, but it also did that for everybody else as well. And so Reconstruction goes in very interesting directions as a result of that. We end up with a more powerful federal government, one that is more involved in people's lives, um, and this affects everybody, not just those how did um, wartime policies in the states that remained in the Union and the wartime policies of the Confederacy fundamentally remake the legal authority of the nation? So the wartime policies in the states that remained in the Union, um, a lot of those are directed around um, the conduct of the war. So some of the key policies are strengthening the federal government's authority in areas that involve them. The draft, um, so we have a draft in the union and this brings up, this affects all these people who are now, um, drawn into the U.S. Army. Um, the federal government also increases its authority, um, over, um, U.S. citizens who are protesting, um, they use federal authority to kind of limit the ways that people are able to protest the war. Um, they also increase martial law in states that are um, the border states, for instance, in Missouri, in Maryland, in Kentucky. Um, so the federal government takes oversight over a lot of different issues that used to be governed by the states alone. And you find this particularly in the border states, where the U.S. Army comes in, and it's the arm of the federal government and is taking over a lot of governing issues that states and state governments used to control. So the federal government is a larger presence in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the ultimately the most interesting, most profound way that the federal government's policy change is in monetary policy. So during the war, the federal government um, actually takes over the currency, the banking system, and greenbacks produces greenbacks and money um, in ways that it hadn't done before. Um, this should be very decentralized. Um, the currency and the monetary system in the United States States and local banks controlled it. Local uh, states and local banks issued notes and currency that other places wouldn't necessarily accept. So if you had a note that was issued by a local bank from Ohio, 
and you went to New York, the New York bank, the New York store may not accept that particular note. And during this period, we have the centralization of banks and of the currency and the issuance of greenbacks, U.S. currency, and it was mandated that everybody had to accept these notes. And what's interesting about this is, one, that the economy ever worked before when there were all these different kinds of notes and you never knew whether anybody would accept them or even how much they were worth necessarily. Um, and you get a transition from that into a more unified monetary system during the Civil War. This may seem kind of abstract, but it actually had profound implications in the lives of ordinary Americans who basically now had notes and currency that was guaranteed as legitimate by the U.S. government. Um, and they were able to, you know, exchange, pay for things, um, have access to this currency. And when they did that, they saw the U.S. government in their hands on the dollar bills or the $5 bills or whatever. Um, and this is kind of a very direct relationship to the U.S. government. The notes were also about loans that the people were making through bonds and other ways to the U.S. government to support the war effort. So people in the United States were very much supporting the federal government in this way. Um, and this is a, a actual sort of a very centralization of authority in the federal government. And it's part of that reworking of the relationship between people and the government. And it's in this really concrete way of how you spend money, how you're able to actually, you know, buy and purchase things. And the federal government is now facilitating that and is part of that. So you have those policies um, in the states that remained in the union that really draw people together. The wartime policies in the Confederacy actually should have forced people apart. The wartime policies in the Confederacy, the Confederacy starts taking over um, the economy. Um, it is centralizing production. Um, it is taking over all kinds of industries that used to be privately owned, but is trying to coordinate production through various policies. And it takes through taxes, people's um, 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 crops, they're, what they're producing. Um, so what you would have are these people who come through the Confederacy and they would take taxes in kind from what you produce. So people would produce, you know, um, foodstuffs and the Confederate um, officers would come through and, and representatives of the Confederate government would come through and simply take pieces of that, um, parts of that for taxing kind to support the Confederacy. The Confederacy also starts taking um, animals that you need to produce your crops, and it leaves people extraordinarily impoverished in the Confederacy. It's basically cannibalizing its own farm, and it's also then um, taking over production um, that has been done by private industry as well. And what this leaves is a real a sense of, of discontent with the Confederacy, the idea that the Confederate government simply comes and takes things from you. Um, there's a draft as well that is far more... Um, coercive than, than far more actually effective than the one in the Union. Um, so it takes men from farms, it takes um, what you're producing from your farm, it takes your draft animals, it takes pretty much everything. And people start thinking that, well, it's taking everything and it's not giving anything time. So where you had sort of a more positive relationship within the Union, you have a really negative relationship with existing developing in the Confederacy, where people are up that with these government policies that are so incredibly coercive and extract so much and demand so much from ordinary people to support the Confederacy, and yet give nothing in return. Um, so in the Confederacy, people have a very negative, negative relationship to the federal government, whereas in the Union, it is ultimately much more positive in the sense that um, the government is asking things from people, but it's also providing something in return as well. And people have a more sort of positive sense of that relationship than they do in the Confederacy. Okay. Um, you may have answered this question in your last answer, um, but do you have uh, maybe some more elaborations on the ways Union citizens' conceptions of and relationships to the legal order evolved during the war? Yeah, I think to sum up, I mean, I was feeling like I was sort of going on in the last one because I was leading up to this question, um, that that actually the unions 
citizens' conceptions, relationships of legal order, during the Civil War, they start focusing more on the federal government. The federal government is increasing presence in people's lives through various kinds of policies, I think particularly the monetary policy. Um, so people have start seeing themselves in a direct relationship to the federal government. And the federal government does represent the nation. So people are looking to that level of government more than they ever had before. The federal government is stepping up. There's more of a presence in their lives, partly because of what is demanded by the war. Um, but those relationships also become more permanent. It's not temporary. People are ultimately seeing the federal government as a greater presence in their life and also a presence that they're willing and they want to maintain that relationship. So they start looking to the federal government more. They start thinking of the federal government as more of an active presence in their life. Before the Civil War, the federal government actually didn't have much to do with people's lives. Um, the federal government was involved with the mail. Um, people voted for federal elections. Um, but other than that, most people didn't have much relationship with the federal government unless they were in territories where um, they didn't have state government, where unless they were Indians, um, where their direct relationship was to the federal government um, in some ways because they dealt with the federal government as a foreign power. But states took care of most of the governing business, states and localities. And so people looked to states and localities, not the federal government. And during the Civil War, that changes. People start seeing the federal government as a greater presence in their life, as an important part of government, and also an important place where they go to obtain justice. Um, so this becomes more important, this area of government during the Civil War, and that is maintained afterwards. Um, by contrast, and I think you're going to ask this one next about Confederacy. In what ways was the Confederacy's legal order at odds with its stated governing principles? So, where the Union is developing this, new, the federal government is expanding, people are actually seeing their relationship to this in a positive light, they're expecting the federal government to do more. The Confederacy is set up actually in terms of states' rights. And we always think of the Confederacy as upholding decentralized government rather than centralized government. And the Confederacy immediately upon seceding sets up a strong federal government. It takes on even more authority than the U.S. government. So this is teams at odds with the Confederacy's stated governing ideals, which are about states' rights and decentralization. And weirdly, it becomes more centralized than the Union in the United States. Um, and it does so to conduct a war effort to support states' rights. So in order to do that, they have to be centralized. Um, so this is very much at odds with what they're saying, is you know the central purpose of the Confederacy. Um, and again, this is a tension because the centralized federal government, people are actually pretty opposed to that idea. And you have, as a result, a lot of internal division within the Confederacy where some people are resisting the federal government, state leaders who want to maintain authority within their states are resisting the federal government, trying to undermine the Confederacy's federal government, and then other people take the ideal of states' rights to even more localized government. Decentralization to them means not centralizing even at the state level, but at the local level. And so those people are acting, you know, in terms of ideas of decentralization in local government, trying to undermine what the states are doing. So the fact that this Confederate government, federal government, centralizes strikes many people as hypocritical and to them opens up the possibilities and the opportunity, but also the necessity for them to resist centralization, to uphold the Confederacy, what they see as the Confederacy uh, central principles. Um, and so you have a lot of turmoil in the Confederacy, a lot of internal conflict over what decentralization actually means and what is necessary to conduct the war. Um, and this results in all kinds of ultimately chaos by the time, the, you know, by the end of the war. Um, so there is much, you know, internal conflict in the Confederacy as there is conflict between the Confederacy and the Union. 
And in some ways, that internal conflict was more pronounced as deadly and, you know, ultimately undermines the Confederacy's ability to conduct the war. Did the Confederacy's loss of legitimacy affect the way Southerners viewed law and legal change in the post-war years? Yeah, I think that experience where Confederate people in the Confederacy, both white and black, saw the Confederate central government ultimately lose legitimacy. It was unable to to govern by the end of the Civil War. They saw it lose its competence, its capacity, its efficiency, its legitimacy. They also saw the same thing happen at the state level, where things just fell apart. And they saw it at the local level as well, where you know, everybody was, all the men were off fighting the war. There are very few people to actually run local government anymore. There were no courts. Um, there was no way to address basic conflicts at the local level in the Confederacy. And so the law fell apart. The institutions that supported the law fell apart. Um, this has a profound impact, I think, on the ways that people in the Confederacy then approached the idea of law and government after the Civil War. For many white Southerners, they lose faith in some of these institutions. Um, and when the Union comes in, the United States comes in to try to govern, they have a real uphill battle. Not only are white Confederates opposed to representatives of the United States, but they also have a real distrust of, you know, legal institutions more generally, of government more generally. Um, government has failed them during the Civil War, and so they're real gunshot about this idea of you know, government stepping in and what it can do after the Civil War. Now, by contrast, former slaves, African Americans who were enslaved, don't have a lot of faith necessarily in local state government run by Confederate officials or white Southerners, but they do have faith in federal officials. So you find African Americans trying immediately after the Civil War trying to bypass local government or state government that's run by white Southerners and try to go to federal courts instead because they have faith in federal courts. After the 14th Amendment is passed, or after the 14th Amendment and after Congress takes over reconstruction and the states are reconstructed in the form of Confederacy around the principles of civil and political equality for African Americans, African Americans do try very hard to make state and local government work. White Confederates, though, have lost faith in those institutions. And so what you have is really a crisis of authority within the states of the former Confederacy, where white Southerners don't see local and state governments that actually are built around uh, new principles of civil and political equality. They don't see those places as legitimate. They also have problems with, you know, what state and local governments can actually accomplish. African Americans have great faith in those institutions. And there's a real fight over what is, who gets to govern the law? Who gets to ultimately be in charge? Um, what, who's going to be in charge of government? Um, and so the kinds of conflicts that actually uh, are emerging during the Civil War in the Confederacy continue afterwards as people are trying are battling over who's going to control these legal institutions. And they're also battling over what these new legal institutions, what government can accomplish. And you have people who are very idealistic, people who think that government can accomplish a lot, and then you have people who have been burned and who are thinking that, ah, I'm not going to put my faith in that. Um, a lot of times we've seen this in terms of states' rights versus faith in the federal government. And yet it's also faith in sort of all levels of government, what it can accomplish, and then who's going to be able to control it. Okay. Would you tell us some of the implications of emancipation for the nation's emerging legal order? So mostly in historiography, people have seen emancipation as emancipation for African Americans. This is the abolition of slavery, and it stands to reason that when you're talking about the abolition of slavery, that that would affect enslaved African Americans the most. They're the ones who are enslaved. Once you abolish slavery, they are released from bondage. And yet, the abolition of slavery is also really crucial in reshaping 
what the federal government, the power of the federal government and America's relationship to the federal government. So before the Civil War, states had control of the rights of all residents of states. Basically, states had control over the rights of all American citizens. Citizenship, who could be a citizen, was defined by federal law, but it, even that was somewhat ambiguous in the sense that federal law defined who could be naturalized, who could become a citizen. But there was actually no federal law or statement about who was a citizen in the sense of all those people who were already in the United States at the time of the revolution, who were born into the United States after the revolution, people who were already here, it was unclear if they were, what citizens were. We had no definition of who was a citizen, why they were a citizen, let alone what their rights as citizens were. So there was no clear sort of federal statement about even who was a citizen. States were the ones who actually had control over the rights of citizens. And there was no federal law that connected rights to citizenship. So states had control over the rights of citizens. And the 13th Amendment, and that includes actually the the absence of rights. So um, states were able to define who was who could be slave or not slave. So the fact that states had control over people's rights also meant that they could take them away. So states then could define slavery, place people in bondage, they could take rights away from people at will. Um, it was within the power of states to grant or rescind rights. The 13th Amendment comes in, and it's a constitutional amendment. It applies to all states. And it says that, in fact, in this one area, um, states cannot enslave people. States cannot do that anymore. The federal government is stepping in and taking control over the rights of citizens or rights of people in this one area. Um, this is really crucial because what this does is establish the federal government's toehold in defining rights of citizens. This area, the federal government is going to step in. But if it can step in in this one area, it's also opening up the possibility that the federal government is going to take a more fulsome role in defining the rights of Americans more generally. So emancipation is really crucial in abolishing slavery throughout the United States. But it's also really crucial in providing the federal government this new position as the governing entity that's going to also be about the rights of Americans more generally. Um, so emancipation is really crucial in this way, not just in the abolishing slavery, but also in reframing the relationship of the federal government to American citizens more generally, all of them um, as well. Okay. Um, could you tell us about legal change at the federal level during Reconstruction? Yeah, um, and this plays off of what I was saying about the 13th Amendment. States had been very involved with the rights of citizens. This was what their purview was, their jurisdiction. And during Reconstruction, the Reconstruction Amendment slowly moved oversight over citizens' rights to the federal government. So the 13th Amendment, Federal government abolishes slavery. States can no longer actually have laws that, you know, allow for slavery. This is a uniform thing that extends over the entire United States. Um, so the federal government is the one who's now in control of this particular issue. It abolishes slavery. This means that, you know, this is constitutional. There will be no slavery anymore in any state in the United States. It limits states' rights in that particular area. Then you have the 14th Amendment, which actually establishes federal oversight over the rights of citizens, um, the civil rights of citizens. Um, so what the federal, what the 14th Amendment does is give, it, it, it gives the federal government the ability to step in when states are restricting rights on the basis of slavery. Um, so states can no longer pass laws that treat African Americans differently, and the federal government now has oversight in that. It also um, establishes federal government purview over privileges and immunities. 
um, and opens up this possibility that the federal government will actually be able to somehow deal with the rights of civil rights of American citizens. It's taking, it opens up that possibility. And the 15th Amendment then does something similar with political rights. Now, all of this is fairly ambiguous at the time, even in these amendments, because there's a lot of debate within the United States about what the federal government's purview should be. Some people are arguing for the idea of a national standard of rights so that everybody in the United States would be able to claim to the same basic array of rights regardless of where they live, a national standard where we're bypassing state jurisdiction and everybody in the United States would be able to claim similar kinds of rights. Um, other people are very committed to the idea that states would retain jurisdiction and control over rights of the people who live in their states, which would mean that from state to state, those issues might be different. States in North Carolina would might have a different array of rights than states in Iowa. People are thinking still in these terms of the 19th century because where you live, is their thinking is very important. Um, Iowa is different from North Carolina. It's different from Delaware. It's different from New York. And so states need to maintain some jurisdiction over rights in order to deal with the particular circumstances in their area. Um, and ultimately, that idea of you know, states, of areas, of particular places, having particular needs, um, of there actually being a lot of heterogeneity within the United States, that ultimately wins out in the 19th century. So that this idea of a federal standard, of a national standard of rights, falls to the wayside, and we get instead that still the idea that states are able to define rights, but now the federal government can still come in and have some purview. So in some some say in how those rights are applied, at least in terms of race within states. Um, and the idea that the federal government does have purview, though, also gives people a place to appeal. So when African-American voting rights are being um, denied, they can go to the federal government and hopefully obtain some redress for what's going on. The federal government becomes sort of the arbiter here, um, the person, the governing institution you can go to in order to address inequalities within states. So that's ideally the possibility here that the federal government will be, you know, will come in and uphold equality within states. Um, but increasingly over the course of Reconstruction and in the late 19th century, um, federal courts increasingly cede more authority to states. And so um, the federal government's role, even as an arbiter, begins to disappear. Um, but still, the idea here is that the federal government could do this. And so a lot of Americans continue to hope that federal authority, that federal courts will ultimately uphold their rights. And they continue to try to get the federal government involved in upholding rights and also expanding out new ideas of rights as well. Um, and so this is about again, a different relationship to the federal government, that what people are doing is bypassing their states and going to the federal government, bringing the federal government into these issues, and trying to uh, appeal to the federal government in new ways to extend out rights and to ultimately uphold new conceptions of justice as well. Okay. Could you talk about popular conceptions of this Reconstruction-era legal change? In the 19th century, rights were very narrowly defined. They involved the transfer of property and basically access to the courts. But ordinary people had different ideas about what the law should do. So they thought it should, in fact, um, deal with questions of justice, and it broadly defined, equality broadly defined, and they thought it should address a wider range of issues. So, for instance, instead of upholding the narrow terms of a contract, people would want the law to uphold a more just sense of a working relationship. So instead of holding somebody to the letter of the law of a strict written-down contract, what they would want instead is the law to deal with questions about payment, of just payment, of just treatment of workers, of creating a just society where, for instance, people weren't subject to violence by, you know, African-Americans weren't subject to violence by former slaveholders. Um, a vision of a just society where um, you know, husbands were held to their responsibilities for supporting their families. 
um, a just vision of society where workers were paid a decent wage. Um, and so these people who are imagining different visions of society, of equality, of justice, they often use the terminology of rights, but their vision of rights is quite different from what is actually upheld and available to them in the formal legal system. Um, and so actually, all of these popular conceptions of justice, it's interesting, they start moving into the legal system through the framework of rights and extending out the framework of rights. I think one of the best examples of this is notions of access to public space. So African Americans um, are demanding access to public transportation, um, to public spaces, to um, federal jobs, government jobs. Um, those aren't actually guaranteed as rights in this period, but they're framing those questions of access in terms of rights in ways that ultimately get validated and ultimately become part of the rubric of rights. Um, and you see this happening during this period to the point where we now think of things like integration, access to public space as a civil right. But in the 19th century, those things were not seen as civil rights. That's an example of how popular conceptions of rights and justice are moving into the law and extending out what we understand as both rights and what the law will protect. Another example of this is access to education. Um, and in the states of the former Confederacy, in the new constitutions that are enacted during Reconstruction, um, many of these constitutions included access to education um, in language that makes it a right. In North Carolina in particular, it actually was written into the Constitution as a right. So education is something that had not been a right before. It was not something that was guaranteed by the state. But as a result of people's claims to education, it enters into constitutions and enters into law as something that is, in fact, a right, that every individual can claim access to education, um, that this is something that the state needs to provide to everybody. Um, and this is another popular conception of justice that moves into government and through the language of rights and becomes something that everybody can claim. Okay. <clears throat> so you had discussed um, the Reconstruction Amendments earlier, but um, would you tell us a little bit about the many applications of the 14th Amendments? 14th Amendment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the Fourteenth Amendment was designed to actually um well it was it was passed in order to establish or provide a mechanism for civil and political equality for African Americans. And yet ultimately what the Fourteenth Amendment does is bring in the federal government as arbiter in cases where rights are being denied or people say rights are being denied or abridged in some way at the state level. So the federal government will come in to ensure that rights are being applied equally. Now, it doesn't, 14th Amendment doesn't necessarily say what rights um, the federal government will come in or what rights the federal government are in the federal government's purview. Um, so even though the amendment was passed to, you know, provide civil and political equality for African Americans, other people start using the idea of the 14th Amendment and the idea that rights need to be applied equally to question state regulation. So the classic case is the Slaughterhouse case, um, where um, in New Orleans, they created a monopoly to regulate slaughterhouses. This is really crucial because if you have slaughterhouses everywhere, all of the um, debris and waste from slaughterhouses can be a real danger to public health. State localities had traditionally regulated in the name of the public health and so had always regulated slaughterhouses in particular, tanneries, other kinds of businesses and industries that created waste that endangered the public health. So they located slaughterhouse in a particular area in New Orleans, downriver, so that it wouldn't contaminate the water supply and wouldn't pose a danger to public health. And it limited, um, you know, people slaughtering animals to this particular area. Now, some butchers who aligned with the Democratic Party and who were led by a official who was very opposed to Reconstruction and very opposed to Republican uh, policy 
um, they sued, saying that their rights are being abridged because their right to a livelihood, their right to pursue their occupation was being abridged by the state legislation, which restricted foddering to this particular area and then limited foddering to that area. Um, in the slaughterhouse cases, ultimately the butchers lost. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court came in and said that no, in fact, states had the right to regulate in this particular manner and over these issues. And that took precedence over the butchers' claims to their rights and their rights being abridged. Later, though, increasingly the Supreme Court came in on the side of people who were questioning state regulations. Um, similar to the kinds of regulations that Louisiana did with the slaughterhouse. So increasing the Supreme Court comes in and starts validating the claims of those people who are saying, oh, the state can't regulate um, my business because that is abridging my rights. Um, so the 14th Amendment over the course of the 19th century increasingly becomes a way for businesses and ultimately corporations to challenge state regulations. So the 14th Amendment, the thing that had been supposed to uphold the rights of African Americans, civil and political rights of African Americans, that part falls by the wayside, and the federal courts start using that 14th Amendment to uphold the, quote, economic rights, right to pursue a livelihood and the property interests of businesses and corporations. Now, ironically, in that effort, to uphold property rights of businesses and corporations, this often works to the detriment of laborers who would like state regulations, so that would, uh, would actually state regulations that limited hours, that provided minimum wages, um, that were about establishing standards for safe working conditions. Those kinds of regulations at the state level are also um, undermined when the court steps in and says that, no, we're going to uphold the rights of corporations, the property rights of corporations, and those rights take precedence over state regulations. Even state regulations that are very popular that are on behalf of labor and are trying to actually uphold the standards of, of you know, laborers' working conditions and what laborers see as their right to a decent wage or safe working conditions or reasonable hours. So, there is a definite sort of conflict here about what the 14th Amendment does and whose interests it should uphold. Um, and as it moves towards property and corporations, there is also a conflict there um, where other people have different conceptions of what the 14th Amendment should do, what government should do. Um, and some of that also continues the same kinds of conflicts that were very apparent during the war as to ideas about popular conceptions of justice, which are about more fulsome ideas about what government should do collectively for workers or African Americans, for women, and more narrow ideas about um, rights that focus primarily on property and access to the court. Now, this question is very broad, and listeners will probably have to read the book to get a full answer to this, but... How do you think the national legal order became one of individualized rights? I think this is, it gets back to the, the three amendments that are passed um, during Reconstruction, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment. And these amendments are about federal government inserting itself into questions about rights. It also establishes of individuals. It also establishes the federal government's purview over these questions in a way that had not been the case before. It gives people a way to bypass local authority, state authority, and go to the federal government. Now, the only way, really, that individuals, people, ordinary people, or businesses, or corporations can access federal authority, one of the few ways, actually, is through these rights that the federal government now has supposedly purview over. So if the federal government is the place where you can go to contest state regulation, state laws, local regulation, local laws, that means that rights become increasingly important 
rights are the way that you can access federal power. Rights are the way that you can contest what you see as injustice at the state or local level. This increases the federal government's power, but it does so through a particular rubric, and that's the rubric of individual rights. If you walk in and you say, gosh, I think the federal government should regulate in the area of establishing minimum wages or establishing, you know, regulation on the workplace. This is actually really difficult to do in the late 19th and early 20th century because those issues in this that period belonged to states. Federal government had not been involved in those issues. Um, and so you can't go to the federal government and say, hey, do these things. The federal government's power, its purview are fairly limited. The one area you can go and access federal authority is through this rubric of rights. You can say the states have denied rights. The states have actually limited my rights, um, and they're doing this in a way that is problematic. Um, and you can go to the federal government to address those issues. So rights become a way that people can access the federal government. And that gives the rubric of rights a lot of power. This is a way that people start framing claims on federal authorities, start framing their claims on government. This is the way that they start, the, the, the rubric that they use, and this becomes a way to make all kinds of claims that you can't make in any other way. Um, so rights becomes really crucial during Reconstruction. It becomes the way that you can access federal power. People start using that and they start making more and more claims in terms of rights. And so the fairly limited definition of rights that existed in the 19th century, that starts changing. People start expanding that out. People start expanding that out um, as a way to access federal authority. And increasingly, this rubric of rights becomes important, more important. Things that we think of now as rights weren't rights actually in the 19th century. And the fact that we have such an expansive notion of rights now is very much a product of this period where rights become really crucial, become a primary framework to create a relationship with the federal government and to access federal authority. The way that you get government to act, um, and that framework becomes more and more crucial in American society. Okay. Um, to conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. So I have a new book that I'm working on on women and textiles. And I got interested in this because I had run across a lot of material on women trading textiles, women owning textiles. And by textiles, I mean clothing, I mean cloth, fabric. Um, we think of those things as being not very valuable now because we can go down to Walmart and buy t-shirts for $5. But in the early 19th century, textiles are really expensive um, and they actually represent a considerable amount of wealth for many people. And so it was interesting to me that women and married women who can't own property are often owning textiles and trading in textiles. And so I started tracing out women's relationship to textiles, and I discovered this whole sort of underground market um, that exists where when basically people who can't own anything else can own textiles, can make claims to textiles. Um, and they're trading, they're using textiles as a means for credit. So they will go credit, they will go down to the pawn shop, for instance, a woman with her dress on Monday morning, her best dress, her best silk dress. She'll pawn it, get the money, and then use that to buy what she needs for her household during the week and then go back on Saturday and hopefully get her dress out of hock so she can wear it to church on Sunday and then go back and pawn it again. And what this is is not desperation so much as her using what she owns, a dress, um, to leverage credit. People are paid in textiles. They trade in textiles. Um, people who, um, if you're an enslaved person, you're walking down the street with um, a piece of gold, somebody's going to take that away from you. But if you're walking down the street with, you know, a shirt or a couple of yards of fabric, nobody's going to question you. So there's this whole economy out there that um, we haven't really thought about. We thought about the development of law and the economy in terms of what men owned and white men in particular owned, which is land and slaves. But I want to see how we understand the United States if we trace the history through what people who can't own anything else own. 
people who own textiles. And think about the market, think about the law, and think about um, the political system from this perspective. Because um, so much of this trade is actually not controlled by state or federal or even local law, and yet it is governed by senses of what is of, of legality, of how you trade, of um, of who you can trade with, of how you pay people back, of what the value is. People have a really highly sense refined sense of both value, what is right and what they can do and what they can't do. And this is all taking place outside of state and federal laws. And it is really crucial, I think, to understand people's participation in this kind of economy and this legal culture because they bring that sensibility with them when they do start interacting with the with state and federal government. So this links up with my last book, this book we've just been talking about when enslaved people are interacting with the federal government during the Civil War, during Reconstruction, it's not like they have no clue about the law. It's not like they have no clue about economic exchange. They've been involved in the economy and legal cultures long before they start interacting with state and federal authority and state and federal government. Um, And they're bringing their conceptions of the law and what the law should do with them when they start interacting with government. So I'm interested in all of that sort of legal culture that happens outside the state and federal government, and I think you can get to that through textile. Well, Professor Edwards, that sounds like an incredibly interesting project, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.